This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We misspoke a bit last week in saying that we would probably bring back Elizabeth Orpina, Aggie Editor-in-Chief, to talk about the results of the election that will determine the future of the Aggie. But in fact, that election is still going on. It only terminates at 8 a.m. tomorrow. We would therefore encourage you, dear listener, if you are a UCD student, to cast your vote. It seems to us that $3 a quarter, with a little extra change, I guess, thrown in, to keep an institution afloat that's been around for 99 years is money well spent. It's, it's actually pocket change well spent. As Elizabeth pointed out on last week's show, a 20% voter turnout is needed for this to be binding. So we urge you to be a part of that 20 plus percent. You might say that this radio station is the other institution that operates out of Lower Freeborn Hall on the UCD campus. And we should note in advance that we too are going to be dependent upon your support come fundraiser this April. Of course, that assumes, dear listener, that you will wait until April to make your contribution, which you can do, but in fact, you can do that any time. I know they're revamping uh, the, the uh, KDVS website right now to make sure that, uh, that it's easier for you to do that, and I'm not sure how the progress is going on that, but we're going to keep uh, hitting you up in the weeks and months to come because, well, we do really need your support. For the past couple of years, we, we've fallen a bit short in our, in our annual pledge drive, and, and that is catching up with us. Like a lot of institutions that do not rely upon commercial support, we have to go to you directly. Of course, the advantage of not having commercial support is we don't have commercial control over our content, which uh, we're pretty sure you do appreciate. And speaking of content, I, I want to say a few kind words about our colleague here at KDVS, Gil Metavoy. Technically, Gil and his program, Crossing Continents, is a music show, but uh, he frequently, I think on a weekly basis, offers his insights on what is going on politically in the Middle East. And in catching his program two weeks ago, I got to say, I was just knocked out by what Gil had to say. He was presenting the various facts in the matter and, uh, and applying some logic to it that made for absolutely riveting listening. Year after year, Gil Metavoy is setting a standard that the, the rest of us involved in public affairs programming here at UC Davis uh, and KDVS should be envious of. And I think as we start today's program, I'll just digress a moment to talk about what we try to do week in and week out, which is simply to offer up an intelligent perspective on what is going on out there with some occasional digressions into things that have nothing to do with current events. Of course, one could argue that everything has something to do with current events, Really, we are doing the best we can on a limited budget, and uh, that, again, makes it more important than ever to point out that your support is needed. We'd like to be able to produce something as good as Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I hope you caught yesterday's program where she interviewed uh, author Trevor Cox about his book, about his newly published The Sound Book, which talks about some of the world's uh, great uh, sonic wonders. It was a marvelous piece and reminded me of a visit here at Davis during picnic day to UCD's own anechoic chamber, which is designed to prevent any sound waves reflecting off the walls. It's an eerie thing to walk in and have all of the sound go dead. And I hope, uh, 
I hope that'll be available to you on uh, the coming picnic day and that uh, some of you out there will go check it out. We've also sent off an email here in the past 24 hours to one of KDVS's own, our former general manager, Stephen Valentino, who now works for WNYC in New York. After listening to the piece that Radiolab did on Wednesday about end-of-life decisions and the difference uh, in those between the general public and doctors, such a wonderful piece of work that, uh, that I've asked that, to Stephen to go down the hall at WNYC where Radiolab is produced. And please, on behalf of a California physician who's seen these issues up close and personal, shake their hand and congratulate them for a job well done. In the weeks to come, we're going to hope to bring to you uh, some current people that are producing uh, programs here at KDVS. And perhaps later in today's program, Gary B. Good will join us to talk about some of his, uh, some of his efforts. I hope so. If not, we'll get Gary on next week. And, of course, Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology has been missing from this program for far too long. We're going to see if we can't do to lobby Dr. Andy to make a guest appearance. All that said, let's commence this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 20th of February. That's with two R's, both pronounced. It was on February 20th in 1422 that Pope Martin V issued a bull, which is the Vatican's word for proclamation, that reminded the faithful that Christianity was in fact derived from Judaism, and it warned church officials to refrain from inciting the public against Jews. And while it does seem hard to imagine that the Catholic Church had to be reminded (laughs) that uh, its origins lie in Judaism, what I find most remarkable about this papal bull was that it was withdrawn the following year. All right, Red Letter Day for Manufacturing on February 20th in 1872, Massachusetts inventor Luther Childs Cromwell patents a machine for making square-bottomed paper bags. Such a simple thing, and yet it changed how we shop. February 20th in 1907, Dmitry Mendeleev, the Russian chemist who developed the periodic table, died in St. Petersburg. Mendeleev had left gaps in his table and correctly predicted they would be filled later by elements not then known. Although some credit John Dalton with uh, the periodic table, most people accept that it was uh, Mendeleev that uh, gave us the version that directly led to our current one. All right, February 20th, 1943, Paracutin, a new cinder cone volcano, began erupting from a Mexican farm field. It would go on to bury two neighboring towns in lava and ash. And within a year, the cone stood 1,475 feet high. Prompting this correspondent back in 1977 to go visit the site of Paracutin, which we did after renting Mexican horses. That's a story that might be told some other day. Especially since Mr. Merlin is expressing great doubt of the story <laughs> as I tell it. Yes, a volcano really did rise up out of a field. All right, it's not often that I, I spot an item that causes me to go, really? That happened? But in fact, on February 20th in 1976, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, also known as CEDO, one of the anchors of the American Cold War and believed to be a primary player in the Vietnam War, quietly disbanded. Hmm. I guess that's why we haven't heard much about it for the past 38-odd years. Yeah, as I recall, CEDO was kind of a tool of American interests to, to pretend that if we didn't go to war in Vietnam, all the rest of Southeast Asia would fall like dominoes. Oh, and here's one final one we shouldn't pass over. On February 20th, back in 1853, while lying on a forest floor in Chile, the young Charles Darwin felt an earthquake. 
and he learned that it had destroyed the city of Concepcion. Days later, as he walked through the city's ruins, he noticed that the local mussel beds were now lying above high tide. Darwin rightly took that observation as evidence that the continent was thrusting itself up a few feet at a time. Our quote today comes from Bertrand Russell, who once said, A stupid man's report of what a clever man says is never accurate, because he unconsciously translates what he hears into something he can understand. This may partly explain Bill O'Reilly's critique of his interview with President Obama, which he is now hailing as one of the great moments in the history of journalism. (laughs) It should be noted that O'Reilly did 40% of the talking. Speaking of dumb, our quip of the day comes from Nicholas Murray Butler, who said, He was born stupid and greatly increased his birthright. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Conan O'Brien, who noted last week, At a McDonald's in Michigan, a woman fired a gun at a drive through worker for forgetting bacon on her order. Noted Conan, in the woman's defense, the worker did forget her bacon. Our anecdote of the day comes from the Uncle John's Book of the Dumb which noted that in Zimbabwe, a nation which we've sadly reported on on many occasions on this show, back in November of 2002, a deal with Libya for gas uh, went south. And short of gasoline, rationing and long lines at the gas pump were the order of the day. But in the rationing rules, there was a loophole that was, according to the Book of the Dumb, just crying out for immoral exploitation which was that you can jump on the front of a gas line if your car was transporting a dead body to a funeral. You can just imagine where this is going. Sure enough, a Zimbabwean mortician and his assistant got a bright idea. For a fee, they'd give their gas-needing clients burial orders that made their cars hearses, and they'd also throw in a dead body in a coffin. The client would hop to the front of the gas line, fill up, then drive back to the mortuary to return the coffin and the corpse. The mortician would get a cut, the client would get the gas, and the corpse presumably wouldn't care one way or the other. Noted the book of the dumb, it worked for a while, but wouldn't you know it, eventually the government had to come in and spoil the fun. The mortician and his assistant were both arrested and charged with violating dead bodies. The book notes they probably could have avoided this charge simply by renting out the coffins and not the actual corpses, because they note, honestly, the guy working at the gas station is not going to crack open the coffin to check. On a much less funny note, we would refer you to the recent uh, story on Zimbabwe in The Economist, February 15th issue. Things continue to go to hell in a handbasket under the autocratic rule of dictator Robert Mugabe. Last July, Mugabe and his ZANU-PF party rigged up another phony election that brought an end to a a coalition government with the Movement for Democratic Change. Observers reckoned, according to The Economist, that the result was largely achieved by a massive but cleverly contrived fraud, in particular the manipulation of the voter rolls to exclude people likely to back the MDC. In the country's continuing decline, factories, what little but fewer left, are continuing to close. One thing that's not helping is that... uh, the pledge of the government under the rubric of indigenization to force all foreign and white-owned businesses to cede a 51% stake to black Zimbabweans, generally friends of Robert Mugabe. This bit of astounding racism is not causing the world to uh, criticize the regime, which this correspondent finds pretty depressing. Of course, if we really wanted to get depressed, we'd talk about what's going on in the Central African Republic, which is Christian militiamen killing Muslims, but we're not going to go there today. 
Let's instead do our stats of the day. Actually, three stats of the day. The first being that 76% of American Catholics say that abortion should be allowed in some or all cases. 79% support the use of contraception, and only 36% agree with the church's ban on female priests. That's according to Univision. Stat number two is that according to the New York Times, more than half the prisoners in the United States have a mental health problem, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, according to our Justice Department. This country now houses three times the number of mentally ill patients in jails as it does in mental hospitals. And stat number three, it's a sad one, more than a thousand Iraqis were killed in car bombings, suicide bombings, and other terrorist attacks in January of this year. This included 795 civilians and 96 policemen. It was the deadliest month in Iraq in nearly six years. That's according to the WashingtonPost.com. And speaking of incarcerated nuts, as we were a moment ago, apparently in Norway, convicted mass killer Anders Bering Brevik has threatened to go on a hunger strike unless he gets access to better video games, a sofa, and a larger gym. In a letter to the AP and other media, Brevik wrote that the hunger strike would continue until his demands are met or he dies. Brevik is serving a 21-year prison sentence for killing 77 people, which does strike some people as a bit lenient. Works out to some, something like 100 days per murder. Of course, the Norwegians are saying that his sentence can be extended for as long as he's considered dangerous. Legal scholars say that likely means he'll be locked up for life. Well, we certainly hope so. In fact, let's take a moment to digress on a couple other legal travesties. Last week, a federal judge dismissed a civil lawsuit brought on behalf of a patient who was bused to Sacramento from a Nevada State Psychiatric Hospital. Evidently, Rawson Neal Psychiatric Hospital in Las Vegas discharged James Flavy Coy Brown via Greyhound bus last February to Sacramento, where he had no connections and no arrangements for treatment or housing waiting for him. Brown's story did lead to a series of investigative reports in the Sacramento Bee that found that the Las Vegas hospital had shipped about 1,500 psychiatric patients to state, states across the nation over a five-year period. This comes as no surprise to anybody in the medical field, such as yours truly. This is a very common practice. And for once, we find ourselves on the same side as Sacramento attorney Mark Marin, who was joined by the ACLU of Nevada in filing a lawsuit seeking class action status against Nevada on behalf of Brown and hundreds of other patients bust out of state by the hospital. They contended the practice was a form of patient dumping. <laughs> Gee, do you think? and violated their civil rights. In dismissing the lawsuit, and you just got to love this, U.S. District Court Judge James C. Mahan, whose district spans the state of Nevada, ruled that state officials didn't compel Brown to get on a bus to Sacramento. Instead, he wrote, Nevada merely gave him the means to leave, a bus ticket. Mahan wrote in an 11-page decision, the coercive power of the state was not imposed on Brown. There was no direct command from an individual bearing state coercive authority, nor threat of punishment if Brown did not travel to Sacramento. Mahan added, Nevada has a right to institute a busing policy that best allocates scarce financial resources. Mr. Miller, we're going to have to reactivate our Jackass of the Week award, I think. By God, U.S. District Court Judge James C. Mahan... <laughs> You are Radio Parallax's Jackass of the Week.
By the way, Mahan was appointed to the federal bench by George W. Bush. Attorney Marin did take issue with Mahan's reasoning, if that's what you want to call it, saying that Brown was confused and heavily medicated and in no condition to take responsibility for his care or ignore doctor's orders that he head to Sacramento. Of course, that recommendation appears to be purely based on the fact that Sacramento is not in Nevada. Apparently, a spokeswoman for the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services issued a short response to the ruling saying, we are pleased to learn of the decision. The judge's dismissal speaks for itself. Well, it certainly does. The article in the B by Philip Reese and Cynthia Hubert about this does note the state of Nevada has defended their decades-old program contending that the vast majority of the patients they bust were to their home communities. And only after Ross and Neal's staff had contacted family at the destination and made arrangements for treatment and care. Sacramento Bee tracked down numerous former patients and their families who disagreed, asserting that the hospital made no such arrangements, and in some cases sent former patients to cities where they had tenuous ties or none at all. Many former patients interviewed by the Bee ended up on the street, at public hospitals, or in shelters, which essentially shifted the burden of their care from Nevada to their destination cities. Duh! All right, since we're talking about stupidity in the law, let's, let's, let's back up into the Book of the Dumb and lighten the mood here a little bit to a little article they titled Historical Dumbosity, Donkey Kong Craziness. The article takes you back to 1983, at which time a tiny company called Nintendo of America released an arcade game called Donkey Kong that took the country by storm. In case you don't remember Donkey Kong or are unfamiliar with it, in it, the player controls Mario, a humble Italian plumber who races up a series of ramps to rescue his girlfriend who'd been kidnapped by a gorilla, the Donkey Kong of the title. As this intrepid plumber would scale the ramps, the gorilla would throw barrels down at him to stop his progress. It's said that Donkey Kong creator Shigeru Miyamoto based the game on the classic Beauty and the Beast story, although it was noted that a few, if any, versions of that story up to that point did feature gorillas, Italian plumbers, or barrels hurled down ramps. But at any rate, the game was a huge smash and earned Nintendo of America $100 million in its first year. Things were looking awfully good for Nintendo until entertainment giant MCA, owner of Universal Studios, decided to sue. Why? Universal Studios made the classic 1933 movie King Kong. MCA decided that the name Donkey Kong infringed on its copyright for King Kong. That being the case, MCA felt that Nintendo owed it a little something. Let's just say all the profits made from the game and its various licensing. Oh, and MCA also wanted Nintendo to destroy all existing copies of Donkey Kong in the inventory just to make sure. Nintendo was taken aback and with no wish to turn over all of its booties, started researching all it could find about MCA, Universal Studios, and King Kong. And wouldn't you know it, Nintendo found out something very interesting, namely that MCA didn't own the rights to King Kong. The rights had lapsed at some point in the past. And not only did MCA and Universal know that, but in a previous unrelated lawsuit, they pointed out that King Kong was in the public domain. Armed with this knowledge, Nintendo told MCA to go to hell. MCA, enraged like a gorilla hurling barrels, sued anyway. But... Like the creature it tried to litigate out of existence, MCA would fall hard at the end. The courts ruled in favor of Nintendo, and MCA was required to pay Nintendo $1.8 million in damages. Yeah, we like how that story turned out quite a bit better. Although this question of patient dumping and busing around the country is bound to continue in the courts, and we will continue to follow it. And wouldn't you know it, our old pal Wilders has a thing to say about the interface between stupidity and the law... 
Holdurst here with a shout-out to U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder for suggesting the feds might finally try to help out states that legalize pot by allowing their dispensaries to use banking services. Way to go, Super AG. That's so bitchingly righteous of you. See, right now, everybody dealing with pot is forced to use cash in all their financial dealings to buy inventory, pay employees, stock up on munchies, tip the pizza dude, everything. And that kind of accumulation of dead presidents tends to attract the sort of company you normally associate with wearing orange jumpsuits, sporting ankle shackles, watching Vin Diesel movies. But the times, they are a-changing. Even President Obama admitted that marijuana is no more dangerous than alcohol. And think of how many steps you have to go through to make liquor, or beer, or wine. It's not like you can walk into your backyard and pick a daiquiri off the cocktail tree. Pot grows right out of the ground. They don't call it weed for nothing. You pick it, dry it, and smoke it. Boom. That's it. Getting politicians to stop lumping all drugs together would be a major victory. But even a fifth grader can tell you that heroin is to pot like an Uzi is to a banana. Heroin kills. Pot giggles. Let's say you do run into a crazed pothead. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You might get fleas. That's about it. All right, there's Twinkie cream on your shirt. Wipe it off. Can't get the song Stairway to Heaven out of your head. Deal with it. It's not just a coincidence that this year's Super Bowl was played between the two teams from Washington and Colorado, the states that legalize pot. And to this day, I'm still totally surprised they didn't start the game at 420. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. All right, we need to take a short break, and we shall do so momentarily. I do want to note that we will be bringing our sports correspondent, Sean Minton, back on the program in the weeks to come to talk about the Olympics and whatever Sean wants to talk about. So I think we'll refrain from mentioning what's going on at Sochi until that time, except a quote from a couple of late-night funny men who have commented on what's going on in Russia as follows. Said Conan O'Brien, there are 12 new events in this year's Winter Olympics. 12 new events include women's ski jumping, luge team relay, and finding a working toilet. And when Sean comes on, we'll have to talk about Russian toilets in a tasteful way, of course. And said David Letterman, or at least his writers, referring to Sochi, the hotels are lousy, the Olympic Village is a mess, the food is horrible, and well, that's what happens when you tick off gay people. And on that note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Evett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Parallax. 